720 WGN, a very happy Saturday afternoon, everybody. Hope you're having a great day. I know I am. This is Let's Get Legal, and we are powered by the Illinois State Bar Association and our entire show today. we got a shorter show. It's fine. we got Northwestern football coming up at the top of the uh, 2 o'clock hour. Uh, of course, we'll have the pregame and then uh, Wildcat football, but we still got an hour today, and we got Mike Leonard, and Mike uh, from Leonard Trial Lawyers, and uh, I think we can fill an hour, Mike. We always seem to <laughs> never be able to, to have enough time, and we got the whole show today, me and you. That sounds great, John. Can we take two or three hours then? Well, I mean, you we have so much time on our hands. You and I can keep on talking, but uh, no one's going to be listening. They'll be listening uh, to the Wildcats instead, Mike. That's probably that's probably a good idea. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know you've had a busy week. You're in you're in trial mode, and uh, that that's got to be a stressful time, no matter what the trial is. You're always you're a busy guy. Yeah, it's crazy. We're on trial every day. Feels like it's a week long. Because the trial days, even if it's a three-hour session in the morning and a few more hours in the afternoon, it really is taxing on your brain because you're just on every second, every moment. And so it just feels like the week is incredibly long. So uh, especially if you get a trial that drags into a second or a third week, it feels like you've been on trial for months. And the interesting thing is when you come up for breath, you realize you're one of only about 10 people in the world that really cares about that trial. So it kind of, <laughs> kind, of brings you, kind of brings you back to life and to reality. You know what I mean? Oh, that's interesting because when you're in that room and you're a defendant, a defense attorney uh, for the most part, a federal defense attorney sometimes or many times, um, you're right. Like for that defendant, I mean, a lot of times we're talking about his life at stake, his or her life, or at least the next few years, certainly. And you're in that mode. And I think that you really embrace that idea of really going to bat for your client and, and fighting for them. Them, but you have to unplug at some point, and that is interesting. You, you, the whole world is in that room in those hours that you're there, and then you walk out, and every other person walking down the street doesn't care. Exactly, yeah. And then what you do is and then you go home, you get done, let's say, 5 o'clock, and then you end up staying till, up till 12 or 1 or 2 in the morning, you know, worrying about it, preparing for the next day, and you do it again and again. So, yeah, it's, it really is important. Your client is totally your focus and your client is totally relying upon you during that period of time. So uh, it's, it's uh, one of the most gratifying experiences, but also one of the most, most intense in terms of being in the law. Right. And, and the, the thing that you love to do most on a Saturday is not unplug, but it's to come on Let's Get Legal. Oh, John, there's nothing better. Who wants to go drink an IPA or watch college football? I mean, you, everyone would choose your show, wouldn't they? Right, exactly, exactly, for sure. Um, you know, we had some great textures you were on with us last week as well, and we couldn't get to everything. And a lot of the texts actually centered around, well, we had a great call about what is truth, what are we really seeking in the courtroom, and then we had an interesting text about judges. And we have a couple of them, so I'm going to kind of do like a judge's conversation. I want to start it out first with this, the idea that we do elect certain judges in the state of Illinois, and we do have an election coming up. I'm not asking you for endorsements or anything like that, Mike, but do you feel like people should pay more attention to the judge situation before they cast their ballot? Well, yeah, probably so, John. It's just so difficult to do. I mean, when you get the ballot, be so many judges on there and you know no it's unique because you will be electing some new judges but for the most part you'll be asked to decide whether they should be retained or not right so you're just basically voting up or down should the state court judge you want to tell about state court right. should the state court judge be retained right 
And then there's some other races where you're actually casting about for this judge versus that judge, right? And, you know, even as a lawyer in the profession for 30 years, sad to say, since 1991, <laughs> it's very difficult for me because even though I'm exposed to so many cases and so many courthouses and I know tons of lawyers, there'll be many instances where I've had no familiarity with the judge who's asked, asked to be being retained or no familiarity with the, with the couple of candidates who are running for a particular spot. So, yeah, I'd encourage people to do things that they can. You know, for instance, you can go online. You can look at the Bar Association's review. Uh, typically what they'll do is they'll say, this candidate's endorsed, this candidate's qualified, or they're not. I mean, clearly, if the Bar Associations are saying they're not qualified, you're probably going to want to give that a, a second look, okay? But in terms of digging deep, and if they're all all ranked as qualified, it's very hard for a layperson to decide who, who they should vote for. So I think it's a, it's a frustrating process. So I, I see the point there. Federal court, you know, we'll talk about that if you want to. That's entirely different. Way different. We don't, we don't, what was we, the question? What was the core of the question in terms of the judges? Like, how should they, how should they make the decision? Right. Well, the first, the first one was about electing them and how often, whether we should move to a different system because the electorate can't possibly know all the factors that go into a judgeship. So uh, the question rooted in why, basically, why are some judges appointed and others are elected? Yeah. Well, it's it's a two different systems. So we focus mostly on state court today, um, but you'll have openings where someone will retire, someone will get moved to a different court, someone might be elevated to the Illinois Appellate Court, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, there'll be people who are appointed to fill those slots. And then ultimately, though, those people will have to run in a contested election. And then as we talked about, once people are in elected positions, they're going to be up on the ballot for whether they should be retained or not, just an up and down. And it's extraordinarily rare. It's happened I think only a couple of times in Illinois where the judges where the judge has not been retained. That shows you how entrenched you know things are. So, but there's always this debate. You know, should judges be elected? Should they be appointed by you know people who are smart or by other judges? But no matter what system they come up with, there's going to be flaws. There are going to be biases. And I think if it's not a public election with judges, then it's going to come down to either other judges making those decisions or other allegedly learned people making those decisions. And then you're going to say, why do we have, why do we have just a, a cast? Why, why is the die cast in such a limited way? Right. And it is limited, right? Yeah. Sorry. You cut off a little there. If you want to keep on going, my friend. Oh yeah. And you know, you, you look at how it's done in various States and they all have the same. If they appoint them or they elect them, yeah, for sure. Robert, so I don't think there is really a system that's going to get universal acclaim on the judge front. For sure. Hey, tell you what, we're going to take a quick break. Mike Leonard joining us now from Leonard Trial Lawyers. You can go to leonardtriallawyers.com, L-E-O-N-A-R-D, triallawyers.com, or call 312-380-6559. If someone's running out of the car, Mike, who should be calling you? John, as we said, everybody in the world. No, we, we primarily, our market would be people who are worried about being either investigated or charged with the crime. People who have been charged with the crime, you know, all, all those sorts of folks. So we represent people on a regular basis in federal court, particularly for purposes of trial. 
in state court also, particularly for purposes of trial, and we've tried cases across the country. And on the civil side, we often represent individuals who are suing companies for things such as whistleblowing or discrimination, things of, things of that nature, always on the side of the little guy, John. Always on the side of the little guy, and uh, Mike will fight for you for sure. 312-380-6559 is his phone number. We're going to take a break. More with Mike Leonard after this on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. 720 WGN, a very happy Saturday afternoon. This is Let's Get Legal. We're powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN, and Mike Leonard here for the whole show from LeonardTrialLawyers.com. Great questions we've gotten over the past few weeks. We're kind of, this is like overtime, Mike. It's all the questions we couldn't get to in the many weeks you've been on the program. We're trying to answer some of them today. And you wanted to chat a little bit more about the question we got last week. A great caller, trying to remember his name, I think it was Jeff, called in about truth. And are we trying to seek truth in trial? Are we just trying to, you know, that the truth is getting lost a little bit? I liked your answer. You wanted to dive a little deeper into that. Well, yeah, I mean, John, I know you're a very philosophical guy that's oh, yeah. you know, probably read, read a lot more books than me, but one of the things that struck me when I had a chance to reflect upon it is sort of the you know futility or uh, the aspirational quality of getting to the truth. And I think I wanted to talk to Jeff about the concept that, you know, look, if you have a, a typical case, and let's take a real simplistic case, where you have two witnesses who testify who give a factual account of a particular event that's at the center of the case. And those two people have a disagreement, essentially, about what happened, what they saw. There's arguments about whether they're credible, whether they are in a position to observe the events properly, whether they had a motive to testify falsely. How do you really decide the truth? That's what the jury determines. So this idea that we can get to the truth um, it's interesting to me because I don't know if you ever really can. There's no objective out there that, no objective standard out there where they're saying, hey, you know, John Smith testified and Betty Jones, and now we know who's truthful or what the truth is. That's really a credibility determination to be made by the jury, which is what happens in, in courtrooms across the country. So I do believe we are trying to get to the truth, but do we really know, do we know that we got to it is, is a whole other question. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it does. And I think that, you know, because I think what Jeff was getting at, and other people get at this too, is that, you know, as a defense attorney, you you are going to get sometimes people out of their predicaments who may have actually committed crimes. And I think you know that. I think defense attorneys know that. Um, but the ultimate goal not, is... John, not, not my Not, my not client, your client. Never, yeah, never, sorry. That, sorry, sorry. That does happen out there. Yeah. Yes. Well, I guess what I'm driving at is that even if that doesn't seem too palatable to people, and I can understand why not, especially given maybe the severity of certain crimes, what is the alternative that we end up getting a lot of innocent people thrown in jail because of a preponderance of evidence as opposed to beyond reasonable doubt, right? Like, it's just kind of a byproduct of a system that we've designed to at least as much as we can maintain the idea that you are innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, and that's really the bedrock of everything. So if you start with the foundational idea that, look, no one's got to prove their innocence. You can't accuse somebody of something and then have them prove that they didn't do it. If you start with the bedrock that that's the idea, that it's the government's burden to prove your guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, I think that's where people have issues with saying, oh, well, you know, someone may have done something, but it wasn't proven beyond a reasonable doubt. But that is our system. That's the, that's the blood in our system. And so, you know, to take that away 
and and as some callers have suggested, can't we can't we make a determination in advance that they did it when they're not saying they do it? I, I don't know really how that would work or who would make those decisions, but clearly there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across the country who would argue uh, very strenuously that they have been subject to wrongful prosecutions, not always for you know death penalty cases or cases that get them 40 years, but they would certainly argue that, hey, I was wrongfully accused of this. I'm very happy and glad that the system is set up the way it is and that the government can't get away with simply saying, hey, you proved to us that you didn't do it. I think that really goes to most people's core that there's something wrong with the system that would require that. Right. And you and I had an extensive conversation off the air last year, or excuse me, last week. I'm sure we did it last year, too, about, um, you know, the, the idea of how the system works and, you know, are too many cases plead out. I mean, like, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, blind spots in our justice system, and it is not perfect. And there are things we can do about it. I'm not saying that everyone sit back and just take it as it is. There are things that everyone can do to get involved in this. And, you know, paying attention to who you're voting for, for judges is one of them. Paying attention to what's happening in court and what in cases, you know, and, and, and making noise if you're upset with the way things are prosecuted or what state's attorneys choose or don't choose to do. There's ways to do it and, and participate in it. But the core of the system, I think, remains strong and, as, you know, as strong as it's ever been, perhaps. Well, yeah, I mean, you're confronted, defendants are confronted on a daily basis with decision-making about pleas, uh, whether to plead guilty or not. And they may truly believe, number one, and know that they didn't do it, or number two, know that they believe the evidence, and after talking with their attorney, that the evidence isn't strong and that there's a very good probability that the government would fail to prove the client guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. However, the client then has to balance that probability, which is very uncertain, especially with the jury, with the choice of, do I take what they're offering, which is, two years or one year or four years when I can get eight or 12 or 20 or life. You know, so those are tough calls to make when, you know, the, the consequences of making the wrong decision and going to trial and losing can have such, you know, extreme consequences of that person's life and their family. So it's just another instance where, you know, the system probably doesn't work because you're putting pressure on people to make decisions where, they know if they lose and they make the wrong decision, even if they didn't do it or the government keep, can't meet their burden, that the consequences are just draconian. Right. Hey, the text also wanted to know about, with, in regards to judges, the idea of you know disciplining or removing judges or what's the check on judges who may be acting out of turn? Is it just simply if it's a federal judge, the 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 you know the the court above them can overrule them, and that's the check on judge? I imagine that's one check on their decisions. But what really is the check on judges in, in certain courtrooms? Well, there's checks on their decisions. Certainly, of course. I mean, the best example would be the appellate process. But you know, there's so many decisions that are made on a daily basis by by judges that are so discretionary that's going to be extraordinarily difficult to get those decisions reversed on appeal. But that is the major check. You know, for instance, an opinion issued by a judge or a decision by a judge to let in evidence or not let in evidence, that's certainly reviewable. But, you know, as you go up the chain, it's tough to get something reversed, especially in criminal cases. In terms of a judge's conduct, you know, that's a whole different story. And, you know, judges have uh, quite different courtroom demeanors. Hopefully a lot of them aren't listening today. <laughs> But, you know, the, the way they treat the litigants, 
the way they run their courtroom, what they say to people, how they act, how they treat them varies dramatically. I mean, I can't underscore that enough. So the only check on that is really, you know, a disciplinary commission, you know, either within their own court or something like the Illinois ARDC, which governs the conduct of lawyers. But let's face it, judges typically are not investigating or reviewed for how they're treating people, how they're running their courtroom or how they run a trial. That's not something that's really going to be reviewed. For sure. Hey, Mike, um, so I, yeah, that, I hate to cut. Let's put a pin. Can't really address. Yeah, let's put a pin on that because I want to tackle it on the other side. We're talking with Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers, 312-380-6559 to reach him and his team, 312-380-6559. Uh, we'll do that more after the news here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. It's John Hansen here on this Saturday afternoon. Let's get legal. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Really powered by Mike Leonard today from LeonardTrialLawyers.com. This is overtime. Now it's double overtime, Mike, as we continue to field some leftover questions in areas that we've not been able to cover on your uh, other many appearances on this program. You having a good time, Mike? You enjoying your day? Yeah, and if, and if it's only powered by me, John, is that enough juice? Is that going to be enough power today? I guess we're going to find out. We got out. a radiant across the glass here. Right? We, we got me. We got the newsroom. We got enough juice going. And uh, it, right. it's a good conversation, right? Because a lot of times we're focusing on the conversation of the day and the news story, and that's all well and good. And then we kind of don't get to dive into these more philosophical questions or how things work. But someone wanted to know, you talked about in the past about how one of the ultimate seek, uh, seeking of truths is the cross-examination. Is the cross-examination the most important thing that you do in a courtroom? I would say absolutely yes, and it's because in criminal cases, as a defense lawyer, really that's how you make your money, and that's how you spend the vast majority of your time. So, as you know, it's the government's burden to prove the defendant guilty, so the government goes first. They put on their entire case, which could be anywhere from just a couple of witnesses to dozens of witnesses. And your job is to try to figure out how to cross-examine each of those witnesses and to what extent. You know, sometimes the best cross-examination is none because that witness has not hurt you. Other times, the cross-examination may be hours. It's it's possible that could be days. Wait, hold That's on. not before, typical, but... Before you go on, there's times where you just say, I've got, you know, like we see on TV... I got nothing for him, Judge, and you don't cross-examine. That's not a sign of weakness? Oh, no. I mean, you certainly aren't going to be doing that all day. But look, what you have going into the case is a theory of the case, right, about what happened and what you care about and what you're trying to emphasize. So, you know, there may be many witnesses who really are bringing forth facts that are completely consistent with your theory of what happened, okay? Hmm. And they do no damage to you at all. They're, they're talking about things that you don't dispute. You know, so, for instance, the, the government may put on an agent to talk about a particular segment of the case. And there may, may be nothing that you disagree with. However, even with a witness like that, there might be some certain points you might want to highlight or bring out. It could be a very brief cross or it could be none. Well, I guess um, you don't want to. I guess you don't want to muddy. I guess you don't want to muddy things up too much either, right? Like, if you're just asking questions for the sake of filling time, you're you're, you're probably clouding your story and what you want to get to the jury, right? Because there is a attention span issue here, right? Yeah. Well, the purpose of your cross is you're trying to educate and be persuasive and make the points that you care about to the jury. Okay, and jurors are bored with, don't care about. 
and dislike cross-examinations that don't have a purpose. If they can't see a purpose to it, if they think you're just dragging things out, they're not going to they're not going to understand where you're going. And so you have to be very mindful of that. And you're right. The uh, ability to maintain focus and attention is very difficult for jurors. So you have to be extremely mindful of what points you can make through which through a particular witness. But we can also talk, John, about sort of the opposite when you have a bigger cross-examination, yeah. sort of what that entails. Yeah, multi-days, you were saying. Yeah, and again, that will be unusual, but certainly very often in federal court, you'll have a cross-examination of a witness, which will be, you know, multiple hours. That's that's not uncommon. And so to prepare for that, you know, what you need to do is spend a lot of time in prep because it's not crossed on the fly. I mean, certainly things are going to come up under direct examination of a witness that might be completely unexpected or new, uh, but you're also ready for that because what you really have to focus on is, is this witness on paper? Are they on paper prior to the trial? Have they given grand jury testimony? Have they given testimony under oath? Have they been interviewed by federal or state agents? And is there a report about what they said? Because you need to know all that going in because when they deviate from what they said previously in a way that hurts you, you have to be ready to impeach them with that prior testimony. So you're going to confront them with the fact that what they're saying at trial is different materially than what said prior to trial. So, so that's why you really need to have a great grasp of what this witness has already said. Right. We're talking with Mike Leonard, by the way, of Leonard Trial Lawyers, if you're just joining us, a federal defense attorney. Okay, so let's say you catch someone in, maybe lies too strong of a word, but they're saying something different than they, what they said before. I'm picturing this big, dramatic Billy Flynn moment, and maybe everyone breaks out in song at some point. But is this a little bit more methodical, less dramatic? You've got to kind of hold those, hold it a little closer to the vest. You can't all the time be screaming and yelling, aha, we got him, your honor, or something like that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you, you don't get to celebrate and take the dance then. And I think when you're, when you're sort of a rookie attorney, you're learning how to do it. You want to sort of celebrate on the spot by how you react or how you question witness. But look, it happens both ways. There are quite dramatic confrontations when you're essentially by your questions, by your tone, by your distance to the witness, and by what you're emphasizing. They said, trial, and we're saying now, where you're essentially, you're calling them a liar very, very clearly, okay? And there's other instances where you're, you're more making the point, and you're going to argue in your, clo- in your closing argument how their testimony today at trial differs from what they said previously. But you're not trying to what's called impeach them uh, on every little point. You know, the jury doesn't care if they got something a little bit wrong. You have to focus on material things where the jurors can see, hey, look, this guy said prior to trial under oath or to a federal agent X, and now they're saying an entirely different story, right? And then jurors can appreciate that they get it. You don't need to do the home run dance. But, you know, there are confrontations, John, uh, that are often very dramatic. It's very clear to the jury that you are challenging the credibility of this person. And, you know, kind of you want an anecdotal story from from this week's trial? Yeah, for sure. So uh, in the midst of cross-examining this agent, and, you know, I was clearly pointing out that, by my, by my questions, by my tone, by my manner, that I didn't believe what he said was truthful, he on his own, you know, turns to me and says, you're questioning my integrity, you know, right? <laughs> and it, it, was, it was quite dramatic, you know, sort of stopped everything. And the jurors are all staring at him, and I'm kind of 
you know, bemused by it. And, and clearly, if anything, it really undercut his credibility. Right. right. And so you get those moments where they're just drama-filled and they're a lot of fun, but it's not always like that, let's face it. Do you like the movie uh, or the musical Chicago, Mike? You ever uh, sing along? The, um, not really, I mean, I like the musical Chicago, and right. I like Richard Gere, you know? But um, <laughs> I, don't, to... I don't know if I sing along to it. <laughs> I just, you know... they. Well, both... Richard, Gere, Richard Gere did do a great legal movie, if you remember this, John. I don't know what it's called, but it was from the 90s, where he was the defense lawyer representing Edward whatever his yes. name is, who yes. was... Edward Norton, right? that he was insane, yeah. And then as a counterpoint was the prosecutor, a woman that he used to date, of course. And they would meet at John Barleycorn on Lincoln to oh, argue yeah. and talk about the case. Primal so fear, primal Richard fear, Gere. right? Yeah, that was, that was fantastic, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a good movie. I did like that one. Okay, we're going to continue <laughs> with Mike Leonard. We should do your favorite <laughs> law movies uh, coming up after the break. By the oh, way, yeah. if you want to reach Mike Leonard, 312-380-6559, leonardtriallawyers.com. More after this on 720 WGN. A few minutes left here on our abbreviated show with Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. And, uh, Mike, we were talking about uh, different secrets of the courtroom, and you mentioned cross-examination and dramatic moments. Someone wanted to know can you really tell and read a jury in those moments to prognosticate not necessarily like how the what's going to be the ultimate verdict but in a moment like you just you just shared that one moment with the uh, that you cross-examined this agent he said something along the lines of are you challenging you know my um my am i telling the truth integrity, integrity yeah um and you realized and you recognized that was a moment do you ever look over and two jurors are asleep and you're like oh gosh they missed it <laughs> Absolutely, I hope. I hope during my cross examinations, they're not all falling asleep. But yeah, <laughs> clearly, you 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 know, and and sometimes you know, there's different schools of thought on how to conduct cross examination. Some some people tell you never look to the jury or never you know sort of ask your cross examination question to the jury. I do it. I do both those things on a frequent basis. Okay, <laughs> you know, it's for it's for dramatic effect. It's for it's to underscore point. But also, you, you also do want to sometimes gauge their reactions. I'm not afraid to look over at the jury during a cross-examination, especially during a moment like that, because sometimes you're trying to make the point to them that, hey, look at this guy, you know, right. you believe him. And, and it's clearly, oftentimes, you'll get a good feeling or a vibe or a response that they're with you during a cross-examination. The difficult part of that is it doesn't mean necessarily you're going to win, but if you're getting the nods and the approvals and, and the, the head nods that they're with you, it's always a good sign. You know, whether it all equates to victory is a whole other issue. Uh, but certainly you're trying to do that. You're trying to get cues from the jury throughout the case. And when you make your final closing argument, you're trying to connect with them uh, on that sort of level. And it's, it's helpful to you if you're getting positive feedback and kind of who is with you and who's not. So, you know, you made a really good point, John. You know, sometimes you're getting that approval while you're doing an examination of, of a witness, but sometimes you're getting a disapproval, and, you're, and you have to take your cues. You know, if all the jurors are look like they're falling asleep, well, that's a cue. You better be done with this witness, right? You're boring them. You're not, you're not persuading them. If you've made your point, it's done. They don't care anymore, right? And then sometimes you may get, the crossed arms response in response to a cross-examination, or you might get certain jurors that are giving you that look mm -hmm. uh, where you know from the cues they're giving to you 
that you need to persuade them. You need to focus on them. You might have to direct your closing argument at them and, and try to bring them around, so to speak. But, you know, oftentimes we're completely wrong, right? We, we a juror is selected in jury selection, and you have this idea that, wow, that person is going to kill us. They're an absolute assassin. I wish they could have been excluded from the juror, jury, you know, from the jurors who got selected, but we can only make so many strikes. They're going to kill us, and they turn out to be the four-person the jury, and you win. Right. And then oftentimes you get the other result. Wow, I thought, I thought those people were with us, and they were completely against us. So that's kind of the fun and the pain. I got the end of your point okay. there. And we're coming up here in the last couple of minutes, and we've kind of done the cross-examination. So, hey, as we close out, let's talk about that clause, closing argument. We see in the movies people staying up all night, writing it, re, you know, big eraser on the bed, not knowing what to do, and then the last moment they throw it out and speak from the heart. What do you do? What's your approach for a closing <laughs> argument? <laughs> that, that is fun. That is funny to see in the movies. Now, they always order Chinese food first, John. True, true. And then once you get to Chinese food, they have the great ideas for the closing argument. Well, one of the, one of the tricks you learn that as you're going along, I mean, a lot of lawyers would say you write that closing argument before the trial even begins because you're trying to determine what's important to you, and you need to know ultimately what you're going to argue. So It's like your guiding part, principle the whole trial. Exactly. So you're thinking from the end back to the beginning and what's important to you. And if I'm not going to argue it in my closing argument, why am I worried about it in a direct examination or cross-examination? I'm kind of in the middle. Of course, you're always thinking to the end. You're always thinking to yourself and making decisions. I, I don't care about certain issues and facts if I'm not going to be arguing about them in my clothes. That's certainly true. Uh, but one of the other tricks of the trade you learn along the way is that as the trial is progressing, you know, you're writing out portions of your clothes, you're readjusting your clothes, you're, you know, you're, you're making slides or whatever you're doing, but you're, you're tailoring it to what you hear because you get some real gems throughout the trial from witnesses, sometimes that are completely unexpected, beautiful quotes that you can use, you know, in your favor against the other side. And so you kind of have to be also writing and adjusting all throughout the trial, and that's, that's what I was just doing this past week in, in the trial I just had. All right. Well, we got a minute left, so what are your favorite uh, tra- law movies or movies that depict the law? Miracle on 34th Street, uh, Few Good Men, <laughs> like what? Are you, or the Fugitive, what, what, uh, what, what's your go-tos? Oh, yeah. I, I love The Fugitive. I love A Few Good Men. That's a great, you know, we all know the dramatic, you know, confrontational scene between Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise and I think Tom should still be a lawyer sometime in his career. Uh, it's kind of cliche, but most trialers love My Cousin Vinny. Oh. Because not only is it hilarious, but the courtroom scenes are, are actually pretty well done. Yeah. Um, what about you? What are, what are, what are you say, what, some of your top ones? I'm uh, someone that is, uh, I guess I'm kind of traditional. I love uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, that old Atticus Finch and that, I mean, that almost made me become a lawyer, Mike Leonard. Yeah. Matt Damon's done a couple good ones. I know the one where he's the young lawyer just out of law school working from some real, some real slime bags. That's a great one. He's representing someone who's being screwed over by an insurance company. Uh, but I always like those little guys. John Travolta actually did a great one where it was based upon a true story where the lawyer kind of put all his chips in on a pollution case out east in Boston and ended up losing, but, but won ultimately. But that's kind of a sad one. 
but also kind of a, a really good performance by John Travolta, if you're taking notes out there. I am. That's called a civil action from 1998. All right, Mike Leonard, we did it. You got us our whole hour in, powered by Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. I really appreciate your time, Mike. And at 312-380-6559, remind people again who should be reaching out to you. John, individuals who are facing or fearing facing criminal charges at the state or federal level or individuals who have a case against the company for things such as discrimination, retaliation, or whistleblowing. But, again, our forte is in the state and federal criminal realm trying cases of verdict before juries. Yeah, or just call 312-380-6559 and, and sing, oh, yes, so oh yes, so oh yes, they both, oh, yes, they both, oh, yes, they both reach for the gun, the gun, from Chicago. Don't wow. do that, yeah, well, right? Maybe I should have you on my answering machine. That would be so powerful to get new clients. Wow. Oh, yeah, you should do that. Thanks, Mike Leonard. I appreciate your time, and I appreciate your time, WGN listeners. We're going to take a break. We'll have news next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom, then Northwestern Football here on WGN.